galactic empire, hyperspace, positronic brains, androids. These ideas developed decades earlier than you might think, and they are the legacy of one man, Isaac Asimov. I'm Jason Stark, host of Galaxy. Join me, along with my friends Stephanie and Jacob Yunker, as we dive into the novels and stories of one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. From iRobot to Foundation to the Caves of Steel and beyond, we explore the narratives, the meanings, and the legacy, one book at a time. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit galaxypodcast.com. All right, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your electron pump speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov. This was originally published as a novel in 1972 and won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. That's high praise. The book is really three related novellas. It's uh, very much like Gene Wolfe's The Fifth Head of Cerberus in that case, which was also published this same year. I guess this was the, the hip thing to be doing in 1972. Each of the sections of the book were published separately in the sci-fi magazines Galaxy and Worlds of If. And I am really excited to talk about this book. It's been on my list for a very long time. And of course, Isaac Asimov is one of the most important writers in science fiction. And he was one of the big three in the middle of the 20th century, along with Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke. And these were the days when television was magazines and you could make a career by cranking out two short stories a month. And this really is where the bulk of Asimov's material lies, even his most famous intellectual properties, the Robot series and the Foundation series, began life as short stories. And and even what we regard as the first Foundation novel was actually just separate Foundation short stories and novellas cobbled together. And that's really what we're going to see in this novel as well. So let's get into this book. Let's get into The Gods Themselves. The year is 2100, and everything is awesome. After an intense crisis owing to overpopulation and ecological collapse, Earth has settled into a population stasis at 2 billion people, and more importantly, humanity has solved the energy problem, powering an industrial civilization with no environmental damage and no cost. But this is a a new development that owes itself to an accidental discovery made about 30 years ago by a radio chemist named Frederick Hallam. Hallam wasn't an especially bright or talented scientist, but when he inherited a a workstation at a a new job, there was some old tungsten on the the desk. And, And really, this was just something that sat on his desk. But eventually, he noticed that the tungsten had changed inside its container Uh, seemingly overnight, and this leads him to discover that sentient beings, people, aliens, from a parallel universe are able to transfer matter between the two universes, and that this transfer creates a source of clean and free energy. Eventually, ultimately, Hallam designs an electron pump that will facilitate this transfer, though he is helped in this by messages from the aliens in the other universe who send images that guide the invention, because the process only works if there is a pump in each universe. 
This help from the aliens, though, is something that Hallam downplays. He's very concerned about his image as a great man, a, a savior, really. And it is true that humanity is not able to communicate with the aliens in, in language, and there is no continuing contact. These really are two separate universes, except for these pumps that just almost invisibly transfer matter from one to the other, creating energy in the process. But all of this is really just backstory. The first novella concerns the physicist Peter Lamont, who discovered that Frederick Hallam really has very little idea of how the electron pump works uh, when he's interviewing him and, and some of his former colleagues for a book about the history of the pump, about the moment when humanity was saved thanks to this invention, this discovery. Hallam realizes that Lamont has seen through his ruse, and so he blacklists him. And this move then prompts Lamont to devote his research agenda to really, truly understanding how the electron pump works. And what he discovers is that it doesn't work, at least not the way Hallam claims and the way that everyone else believes. There is, in fact, a price for using the pump, and that price is the inevitable explosion of the sun in just a matter of decades. While Lamont has been doing his physics and his, his math to investigate the pump, he has also enlisted the help of an archaeologist and philologist who has recently cracked the language of the Etruscans, a civilization in ancient Italy from the, the region we now call Tuscany, whose language died out as Latin became the universal language of Italy in the first century. The Etruscan language was unintelligible to scholars, I mean, just completely unintelligible uh, for a very long time, and philologists still remain uncertain about where the language fits in the, the family tree of languages with most scholars until recently believing it to be a language isolate, or at least to not be related to the Indo-European languages. Now, this isn't the case anymore, though there is still much disagreement about the Etruscan language, and I love ancient languages. I have a degree in Latin, so this was a very exciting part of the book for me. I, I was hooked by this right from the very start. And of course, you know where this is going. Lamont wants this scholar to decipher the alien language from the few pictograms they have, so that they can try to actually communicate with them. And they succeed, at least enough for simple messages. And the result of this is that they get confirmation that the pump is bad, though that's as much detail as they get from the aliens. And then there is another message that explains that the aliens, or at least the alien who is communicating with them, can't turn off the pump on their end, so the humans will have to do it on theirs. Lamont, who, who really is just a, a simple scientist and even kind of a rogue one at that, Lamont tries to convince the powers that be that the electron pump is bad and needs to be shut down. But of course, no one wants to do that because it would mean giving up their civilization. And so scientists and bureaucrats engage in some special pleading and they really just double down on their previous understanding of the math behind the pump in order to discredit the very clear findings of Lamont. And this is where the first novella closes. We know Lamont is right, the aliens know Lamont is right, but it doesn't matter, and the sun is going to explode in just a few years, and we are all going to die. The second novella really surprised me by shifting to the perspective of the aliens in the parallel universe, and, and this, I think, is really the strongest part of the book. These aliens are quite different from us, and Asimov does a fantastic job in showing us that while still continuing to write in his very accessible and lucid prose. These aliens aren't humanoids. It's not a mere universe. It is a totally parallel universe. And, and indeed, these aliens 
aren't even animals. Uh, they really aren't any kind of life that we would recognize. The aliens appear in two distinct groups, hard ones and soft ones. And the hard ones do seem to be rock-like in some way, They're like Horta from Star Trek. And the soft ones are like amoebas. Uh, really, they remind me, again, of something from Star Trek. Here it's the changelings from Deep Space Nine, at least when they're in their goo form. We come to understand that the hard ones are the adult form, and the soft ones are the young form of this species. But this is complicated by the fact that it is the soft ones, the, the kids, who do all the reproducing. And so there are really three distinct life stages to these creatures. First, they are children as soft ones. Then they are reproducing adults as soft ones. And then they are post-reproductive adults as hard ones. Though there's another revelation about their nature and relationship that's coming. Asimov tells us a story about these aliens through the perspective of just a single soft one family. Soft ones have three sexes, all of which are necessary for reproduction, and so partnerships consist of one member from each of these sexes. And I'm going to talk more about this in the next segment, so here I'll just say that one member of this soft family has the insight to solve their energy problem by looking for energy sources in a parallel universe, though this character, Odin, doesn't do anything to implement this plan because he's just a student at the school that's run by hard ones. There is, though, some confusion in the narrative because we hear that the Hard Ones are actually implementing this plan under the direction of a Hard One named Etwas, whom none of our characters ever interact with. And there just seems to be a little bit of confusion about the, the timeline here, though it turns out that that's intentional, that Asimov is playing with us a little bit, and it, it's very cool, very exciting. Now, the, the tension in this novella, though, is that another member of this family, Dua, discovers that the pumps are going to destroy the parallel universe. That is to say, the universe that, from their perspective, is parallel, but is our universe. And on top of that, the Hard Ones know this and are doing it anyway. And Dua finds this morally repulsive, and so she attempts to do something about it. And of course, it is Dua, whom our characters in the first novella are communicating with, and it is Dua who tells the humans that they have to stop the pump from their side because it's not going to get turned off here. In the end, though, Dua is not able to accomplish anything because of a dramatic revelation to us and also to Dua, Odin, and their other partner, uh, a revelation about the nature of sexuality and growth in their species. When three people have sex, they, they meld together physically, and, and this is an act that can sometimes last for days or even weeks the individuals experience this as lost time that they remember as a period of intense pleasure and, and also intense mental stimulation. But it turns out that from an outside perspective, during this time, during this melding, the three individuals combine to form a new single individual, a hard one. Now, in this moment, at least, this is temporary, but eventually the three individuals will permanently form a hard one when they're all done reproducing. And you see where this is going. The hard one, Etwes, who is responsible for the invention of the pump, is the personality formed of our three main characters, one of whom is actively trying to sabotage the project when they are not melding, when they are their soft one family and not this single hard one. And the story ends with the permanent transformation of our characters into Etwes. And the last line here is Etwes saying, I am permanently with you now, and there is much to do. And so just like the first novella, this one ends with 
us, the readers, knowing that the pump is a problem. And there's a character who knows that too, but the character is helpless to do anything about it in the face of the powers that be. And so we go to part three, where this is all going to be resolved. And part three is the longest chunk of this story. And when I was reading the book, I I didn't know that it was going to feature a new set of characters. I I thought for sure that we would be going back to Lamont and his efforts to save the world. Instead, we pick up with another scientist. Uh, This one is a a man named Dennison, who worked with Hallam during the development of the pump, but has now independently come to the same conclusion as Lamont. Dennison travels to the moon where there is a thriving human civilization, and he's there to to carry out some experiments in the service of saving the world. But where Lamont wanted to alert people to the danger of using the pump and and, and get them to just stop, to, to give up all their comforts and all their civilization, Dennison believes that the only way to turn off the pump is to invent something that can replace it. And, and there's a really great passage about this that I just want to read to you. Asimov writes, It is a mistake to suppose that the public wants the environment protected, or their lives saved, and that they will be grateful to any idealist who will fight for such ends. What the public wants is their own individual comfort. We know that well enough from our own experience in the environmental crisis of the 20th century. Once it was well known that cigarettes increased the incidence of lung cancer, the obvious remedy was to stop smoking. But the desired remedy was a cigarette that did not cause cancer. When it became clear that the internal combustion engine was polluting the atmosphere dangerously, the obvious remedy was to abandon such engines. But the desired remedy was to develop non-polluting engines. And of course, this does exactly describe us in a nutshell. Now, ultimately, Dennison succeeds here in inventing something that will solve the problem of the pump. uh, First, by positing that there must be more than one parallel universe, that in fact, we live in a multiverse. And that these other parallel universes, that all the universes in this multiverse can be accessed and exploited, much as the hard ones are doing to our universe. And this is not a moral problem, though, because Dennison is able to locate an uninhabited universe that is still in its cosmic egg form before it undergoes a Big Bang. And indeed, this process, after millions of years, will likely initiate a Big Bang in this other universe. So he's not going to be damaging some other universe where there are living people. Now, there would also be a moral problem with turning off the pump, at least from our perspective as readers, because we know from the second novella that the aliens cannot live without it. I mean, they are rapidly dying off. They are going extinct because of their own energy problems. And here, Asimov sidesteps this by having Dennison's invention not be a replacement for the pump, but rather it's a device that cancels out the negative effects of using the pump And so everyone wins. The aliens get to keep their pump. We get to keep our pump. Free energy, no extinction, no exploding suns. Everything is going to be awesome at the end of this book. And while this is the resolution of the main plot, the main story about the pump, there is actually more going on in this third section about the moon and about lunar society. But I want to talk about this in the next two segments on strengths and weaknesses and themes and motifs. So let's go talk some themes. The first theme I want to examine is sexuality and gender. We've seen already that the middle part of the book examines people who differ from humans in this regard. And Asimov presents this to us as an interesting biological concept, right? He gives this to us as a a type of hard science fiction. But really, what he's interested in is talking about sex and gender in American culture around 1970. And we're going to see this reinforced in section three as well. But let's start with the soft ones. 
There are three sexes in the softwind species, and in addition to having unique and necessary roles in reproduction, they also have distinct emotional impulses and varying intellectual capacities. First, there is the parental sex, which has an impulse to procreate, a desire to face problems directly, and a limited capacity for abstract thought. Second, there is the rational sex, which has an impulse toward learning and a very high capacity for intellectual aptitude, and society seems to really function around rationals. The school that the hard ones operate is only for rationals, for example, and only rationals are given full access to the community, while parentals stay at home. The third sex is the emotional, which has a drive toward emotional connections with others, and especially with the community of other emotionals. Emotionals even derive energy differently from the other sexes, right? They have a, a different food source. And since their energy, and, and a high amount of energy, in fact, is necessary for reproduction, emotionals spend much of their time with other members of their sex, gathering energy away from the rest of the community at large. And we're told that adult partnerships, triads they call them, begin with a, a parental pursuing a rational and that they are actually able to have a sexual relationship with each other without an emotional, and only later will the parental and the rational bring an emotional into their relationship. Now, emotionals are exactly that. They have an inclination toward what we would call emotional intelligence, but are not inclined toward abstract thinking or toward reason uh, in the way that rationals are. In the triad that Asimov follows, it is the rational who has the insight about parallel universes, and it is the emotional who is concerned about the morality of destroying another universe, killing other creatures, in order to solve their own energy problem. But this emotional, Dua is the name, is not like other emotionals. Dua actually does have a high capacity for reason, and for abstract thinking, and for learning. And the rational, Odin, teaches Dua what they learn at school, and Dua has genuinely helpful insights to contribute, right? Dua, Dua, in fact, is partially responsible for the creation of the pump, which Dua is morally opposed to. But, of course, other people make fun of Dua for being weird, for not conforming to the gender roles their society assigns to these sexes. And Asimov has a message here. Dua and other emotionals are given the pronouns she and her, while the rationals and the parentals are given he and him. And what this does for an English-speaking reader is, is, is it forces us to think of Dua as a woman, and it forces us to think of Dua as a woman who is being denied an education just because she is a woman, and because she should be doing woman things like gossiping with other women and getting ready to make babies. But Dua doesn't want to do any of these things, and much of the narrative is about her efforts to withdraw from sex and withdraw from reproduction because she doesn't want that role to define who she is. And on top of this, there are several passages here in the book that describe two characters with he and him pronouns having a sexual relationship together, even though that sex will not result in children. And in this society, there is nothing deviant or nothing morally suspect about this relationship. Obviously, Asimov is offering up here a critique of his own society, right? America, circa 1970, in which many people still wanted to relegate women to specific and limited roles in society, and which regarded homosexuality as a sort of perversion of nature. So here, Asimov is embracing the women's liberation movement, which sought to elevate women from their status as second-class citizens 
But he's also championing gay rights in the immediate aftermath of the 1969 Stonewall riots. These are issues that are fresh. These are issues that are on everyone's mind as Asimov is writing and publishing this book. This is a pretty obvious reading of the middle of this book, the the second novella here. But I can imagine a 14-year-old in 1972 reading this and not noticing the message because it's just about aliens. But Asimov reinforces this theme in the final section, which is really largely a walking tour of lunar society from the perspective of someone who has just arrived from Earth. That is, from the perspective of someone who could have been Asimov's neighbor in 1972, a sort of audience surrogate. And we see that lunarites don't have the same sexual mores as we do, that they prefer to be naked, even in mixed sex company, that they don't care much for marriage, and that they expect to have multiple sexual partners over their lifetime, and that while they really quite enjoy having sex, they much prefer to become pregnant through artificial insemination, right? They think becoming pregnant through sex is gross, it's disgusting to them. And in addition to this, Denison is only able to invent a new type of pump and save the world from blowing up because of his lunarite assistant, a woman named Selena, who, despite not having any formal training in physics, has brilliant intuitions. Uh, Indeed, she may as well be the human equivalent of Dua from the, the second part. And ultimately, even if a teenager missed the subtleties of part two, there is no way to miss the cultural anthropology that is going on here in part three and to take it as a prompt to reconsider your own sexual mores, your own gender roles. And this, as I say all the time, this is what science fiction is for. And even if this were the only theme of the book, the gods themselves would feel like a pretty good episode of Star Trek, right? It it gives us a critique of our own society gets us to look at our society, look at our norms, our values, our assumptions about the world, and ask if they are true, and ask if they have to be true, and especially to get us to wonder who is relegated to second-class citizenship, or who is demeaned by our assumptions, and is that right? But there is more going on here. Now, it should already be clear from the plot recap that the central concern of this book is what we now call climate change. Again, this is not a concept that's going to be new to you. You know that polar bears are about to go extinct, and you know that you really shouldn't be in the market for a beach house right now. But in 1972, Asimov was way ahead of public opinion here in calling attention to this. Climate change was observed by scientists beginning in the 1950s, and there was some newspaper attention given to this during the 1960s, but this wasn't really a part of our common knowledge and public discourse until the mid and and even the late 1980s when NASA testified to Congress about climate change and when Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, was published. So while this is on the nose and, and perhaps even tiresome to us now, In 1972, the odds were that this was the first time you'd ever heard that our use of fossil fuels was ruining the planet for human habitability. So this book was a big deal when it was published, and it is perhaps no surprise that it won both the Hugo and the Nebula, even just on this count alone. And indeed, the the very title of this book is about the problem of climate change, about our folly in ignoring this problem and continuing to engage in our dangerous behavior. The title comes from a line by the 18th century playwright Friedrich Schiller, and the line is this, Against stupidity, even the gods themselves struggle in vain. And the idea here is that human stupidity is perhaps the strongest force in all the world, and it is hard to fight it. Uh, But fight it, we must. Now, I won't belabor this point anymore, because we all know this. But I will say that something I admire about this book is that Asimov is not merely sounding the alarm here. 
He's suggesting that we get to work on alternative energy sources so that we can continue to enjoy our civilization. So we don't have to give anything up, but we won't be committing suicide, biological suicide. And I found this very interesting from a historical perspective, and in part because over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we're only just now finishing up Wolf stories that were published in 1973. So really, we've been for years now reading stories that are contemporary with this novel. And of course, Wolf, as you probably know, was very concerned about environmental protections and climate change. And he also incorporated this into his stories during this period, though he does that very differently than Asimov does here, because of course, Asimov is much more of a hard science fiction writer than Wolf. And if you aren't already listening to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, but you are interested in environmental science fiction, and you'd like to have a comparison to what Asimov is doing here, a contemporary comparison, uh, I'd recommend going to check out our episodes on the short story IBEM. That's a, that's a very early episode on our show. And also the five episodes that we just did on the novella The Death of Dr. Island. And that one takes a very, very different approach to this topic than Asimov does. Uh, and I would love to have a conversation on the forum looking at the different ways they are addressing this problem at the exact same time. And, and of course, both of these writers coming from uh, an advanced scientific or engineering background. Okay, are you ready for strengths and weaknesses? The Gods Themselves is a bit of a step down in quality from the first three books that we've read on ATOS, but... I still really liked it, and I would recommend it to anyone. Asimov's prose is accessible, and he's very much writing science fiction as the literature of ideas, and the hook at the beginning is great. There's a mystery, and people are trying to solve it, and we want to tag along while they do. And Asimov even has a little joke at the beginning of the book about his writing style when he uses the phrase, facile writer. Now, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I would bet that someone used this phrase to criticize him for not writing like Ursula Le Guin or Gene Wolfe, and that this is his tongue-in-cheek response. And it is true that Asimov doesn't write complex prose. He's not looking into rich characters. But what he writes is accessible in the best meaning of the word, right? It is foregrounding the ideas and wanting us to get them, wanting us to understand difficult science fiction or difficult science concepts as clearly and lucidly as possible. And it's great. And I think the second section of this novel, the, the section from the point of view of the, the soft one triad, is some really awesome science fiction. I've talked already about the themes he's working with there and the interesting biological ideas. So I won't say anything more about it here other than to emphasize that it is awesome. But even though I did thoroughly enjoy this book, there are some weaknesses. One is really a matter of personal taste, so I'll get that out of the way before I address a more serious concern about the, the narrative structure of the novel. Part one sets up an academic partnership between a physicist and a philologist, both of them working on understanding the pump and the aliens who designed it. And we get a lot of intellectual backstory about the philologist and his work on the Etruscan language and who the Etruscans were. And for me, this was my hook into the story. And I expected to get quite a bit about the language and the work that goes into deciphering it. I thought it was going to be a hard science fiction story about philology, about language. And I was psyched for that. But ultimately... It's not about that at all, and the philologist even cracks the language in between scenes, and we just jump right into communicating with Dua on the other side. 
this was personally disappointing, but it does also mean that all the backstory about Etruscans and the philologist was wholly unnecessary. It was kind of uh, almost a red herring for what the story was going to be about. But that said, I was still very excited by the beginning of the gods themselves, and I think the real weaknesses are actually all in part three. They're all at the end of the book. Up to this point, the book has been about the imminent danger of continuing to use the the pump. And, And while that problem is solved in part three, most of this section is just a tour of lunar society. And there's nothing inherently bad about this choice. Uh, One of my primary values is world building. It's really what I'm here for. But Asimov minimizes the plot here in ways that are really anticlimactic. The obstacles that Denison faces are minimal. And he's even aided by both a government bureaucrat from Earth and also the lunar government. So the obstacles that Lamont faces just evaporate here. Denison doesn't face them himself, and and in fact, doesn't really have any obstacles at all. Now, Asimov does try to overcome this because, you know, a story is only a story if it's about someone overcoming something. So Asimov does try to solve this by writing in some mystery here, where we see that the lunar government is using Denison for its own secret purposes. But this turns out to have no teeth, because that purpose is not at odds with fixing the pump, with saving the world. And it's really about a theme that Asimov only partially develops. Uh, Indeed, really, this whole section of the book very much feels like a response to Heinlein's novel about the quest for lunar independence from Earth, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And I'm interested in that. I I even read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress again very recently. And so this is a conversation that I would like to take up more on the, the forum. So in the end, the resolution of the plot feels real flat to me because Denison hasn't done anything heroic or really hasn't even done anything especially interesting. And and really, it seems that by the time we get here, Asimov is way more interested in the romance between the unattractive middle-aged Denison and his young and beautiful assistant, Selena, than he is in resolving the plot that he established in the first two parts of the book. And the last section, even, of the novel has these two beginning a romantic relationship now that their work is completed— And this is not a terrible way to end this section, but in the moment of concluding the book, I really wanted one more chapter that better wrapped up the main through line of all the the sections here. But really, this is a small complaint. I enjoyed the heck out of this ride, even if the ending was a little weak. If Asimov doesn't quite stick the landing as well as I would have liked. So that is The Gods Themselves, our first stab at a hard science fiction novel, and a pretty good one, I think. A good way to start that subgenre of speculative fiction. I hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs, the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on here, but also, and really especially, on what I've left out. There's a lot more that we could say about the three-sex division of the soft ones, for example, and the way that intersects with psychological theories of the mid-20th century, and actually, frankly, also the way that uh, the three protagonists of Star Trek the original series are characterized. That would be a fun conversation to have. And, you know, I'm a little disappointed that we never check back in with the parallel universe or the efforts to communicate with the aliens there. And I'd love to hear how you think that story might continue if Asimov had returned to it at some point. And I'd even love to read some fan fiction if you're feeling inspired. So come to the forum, share your work, share your thoughts and ideas with me. I'd love to talk to you about this book. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Claytemple Media. 
Next month, we'll be reading The Ale House at the End of the World by Stephen Allred. And I'm thrilled to be looking at this book. For one, it's the first book that we're doing here on ATOS that was written in this millennium, and it comes highly recommended by a longtime listener to our network. But until then, remember, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.